Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, how was it for you? Did you spend the weekend avoiding the shops because you can't stand the idea of wearing a mask to go into one? Did you do your weekly trips for the food happily covering your face for the first time just because the government told you to do so? Uh, did you spend hours fretting about that fortnight's holiday you booked in Spain for the last two weeks of August? Or did you just enjoy reading all the royal nonsense published in the newspapers this weekend? How Meghan and Harry were the victims of nasty, horrible people that forced them to live in a rent-free 10-bedroom cottage while handing them free money and servants. How William and Kate pushed the boat out for the pair of them and only got branded selfish in return. And how the Hollywood horrors most definitely didn't cooperate with the book, Finding Freedom, even though it seems to carry an awful lot of their friends' views. We'll be talking to royal author Charlie Ray later on in the show. First up, though, is Nick Dubois, former Tory MP and talk radio host, of course, with the lowdown on what Boris does now. He's launching his new fitness regime this week by urging everyone to lose five pounds to save the NHS 100 million quid. Not content with banning junk food adverts, the Prime Minister is hiring an army of weight loss coaches to work in GP surgeries and doctors will get bonus payments for the number of patients referred to weight loss clinics. It's all a bit of a con, isn't it? Maybe you should make it a tax incentive as well. You know, pay me to lose weight and I might do it. 0344 499 1000. Mail on Sunday columnist Peter Hitchens joins us later on with his take on the latest developments from the nanny state and I'm pretty sure he's not going to be in favour of much of it. Plus, we want to hear from you. What did you get up to this weekend? What did you do? Where did you go? What did you see? Uh, and what did you think? 0344 499 1000. We'll find out how busy or empty the shops actually were and which other holiday destinations could be affected by quarantine this week because it's possible, entirely possible, that France and Germany might join the list very soon as well. Homeschooling today is all about the migration of birds. Apparently they can go where they like. No quarantine for them. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So it all came as a bit of a shock at the weekend, didn't it, when suddenly the government announced that Spain was going to go back on the bad list, and if you went there, and if you were there, and if you were planning to go there, uh, and if you didn't get back by midnight, uh, I'm afraid you're going to have to do 14 days in quarantine. There are so many questions that so many people have got. Exactly what does quarantine mean? Are you allowed to go out for essential shopping? Yes. Are you allowed to see people? Yes. Are you allowed to go and stay in a hotel? Yes. 
Are you allowed to uh, generally wander about and do whatever you like? Supposedly, no. But who's going to check up on whether you're doing that or not? 600,000 people are currently on holiday in Spain. I'll just say that number again. 600,000. Imagine how many planeful of people that is. And imagine how many of those people, when they come back, will have to go into quarantine. That's right. 600,000. Who's going to check them out? Who's going to make sure it happens? Who, indeed, uh, is going to decide which country goes next? Is Portugal going to have their status of quarantine lifted? Is France and or Germany uh, going to be added to the list? Will the Balearics be freed up so that people can go there and come back without having to go into quarantine? It's all a bit confusing. Let's speak to Nick Dubois, uh, host, of course, of the talk radio uh, show on Saturday between 5 and 7. In fact, he did it uh, this weekend. Former special advisor, former Tory MP, uh, resident of Spain as well. Nick, a very good morning to you. Well, uh, part-time resident occasionally, Michael, <laughs> but I had the misfortune, I had the misfortune of breaking the news about the um, uh, quarantine right. in the last few minutes of my show on Saturday, and I'm very glad I wasn't there to take calls, which I'm sure would have been flooded <laughs> in shortly afterwards. Well, exactly. But look, actually, I've... I've got, a, I've got a bit of sympathy for what the government did, because had they sort of given a few days' notice, you can bet your bottom dollar everyone would have said, well, that's terrible, the government are late again, late to the picture, isn't it awful? So I kind of understand why they acted so swiftly. And the bottom line is, there is a R factor in Spain of 1.3, and that does mean infections are rising. And the reason for that is generally accepted that they've kept bars and nightclubs open until about four in the morning. Mm. And therefore, lots of younger people are getting it, which is less of a threat to them, but obviously increases the number of infections. So they have gone up at quite a rapid rate. So I kind of get where the government are coming from. It's going to cause huge problems for lots of people. But I'll have a, a wager with you that I think what you're going to see is probably the islands of Lanzarote and the Balearics probably being exempt. Now, that is a prediction. It is a prediction that I can be held to account for, but not many people can do much except have a go at me if I'm wrong, because I think that this will be constantly monitored. And who knows, in two or three weeks, the whole thing could go away anyway. Yeah. Um, but it's the warning. It, the, the problem, I suppose, for the government, and you're quite right, I have some sympathy for them as well, because whether they do the right thing or the wrong thing, they will always be criticised, whether they should have done it earlier, whether they shouldn't have done it earlier. I mean, I think the thing for a lot of people is that if they were seeing the figures on the Friday, uh, they might have given at least a day's notice to some people uh, who might not have decided to fly out on the Saturday uh, before they announced it. Do you know what I mean? So I think that's where people have become frustrated. Um, and Grant Shapps, for him as the transport uh, minister to be out there particularly having gone just before the announcement was made uh, it doesn't make it look as if there's a lot of joined up thinking going on well i, I think he was also in a no-win situation can you imagine if it then emerged after the ban that he he can, uh, cancelled his holiday and not gone mm. he would have been accused of insider information and how outrageous it was <laughs> that grant shatz had the privilege of cancelling his holiday and not having to do quarantine where others would then claim. So again, a bit of a no-win for politicians. But of course, what all this has done as well, Mike, has, um, has, has kind of taken a little bit of focus of Boris's big announcement on the obesity yes. thing. Now, I, I, this reminds me, I don't know about you, of the sort of conversion a, an ex-smoker has. Yes. So once they stop smoking, they then, then become evangelical about the cause um, and, and 
and they almost go to the other extreme of previously held positions. And we're seeing that very much at the moment uh, with, um, with Boris announcing this raft of initiatives. And kind of, the, I've never disagreed with the argument about health, and it will save the NHS money. I have said for years, even when I was in Parliament, that if you love the NHS, then love yourself a little bit. Think about the damage you might be doing to your own body with excessive eating and no exercise. What slightly troubles me today, though, is it's all about government telling us what to eat, what not to eat, putting messages on boxes, um, taxing us more on items and doing away with bargains. Where are they talking about the exercise? Where are they talking about the, the kids at school? If you start at a young age reminding people there is more to life than a computer screen, they will start doing more exercise. It is no accident that the generations before recent generations, the last two particularly, uh, have been a lot fitter. And all we're hearing about is what the government are going to do, what the government are going to tell us to do. This, as you talk, as you described it, this return to nanny state. I'd also say, where's personal responsibility in this? And what are we going to do about exercising people? Apart from seriously, are we putting a another expense into a GP surgery where we give people um, one day uh, probably we'll end up with a specialist giving them state funded membership mm. to a gym when they could just as easily undertake exercise without any state support. We've got to educate people more than anything else. Absolutely right. And I don't think that there's any harm in the schools getting more involved in that uh, at a very early stage when the kids are learning about physical education. But an awful lot of schools have very minimal physical education now because they either don't have uh, the wherewithal to take people to a playing field anywhere uh, because it's all been sold off or because they haven't got much equipment actually in the school. But you're right to, to, to liken it to the smoking argument because, you know, Similarly, uh, they're offering doctors bonuses for getting people signed up to slimming clubs. Well, that seems to me to be a license to print money and open up a slimming club and basically get free referrals from the GP's office. Everybody's happy, apart from the taxpayer, who's getting rinsed. Well, you know, this is classic. It's been going on for years, is that doctor, there'll be a sudden rush to do something, and often for, for good reasons. Let's not forget, this is for a good reason, even though some of the means may be open to question. Mm. And then what happens is they'll run a clinic, they'll push people through because they get more money for it, and, and it kind of distorts the, the priority. But, Mike, let me just move back a little bit about school, shall we? You're quite right. Labour and Conservative governments you know, can't look back particularly and say they did a good job protecting school fields. We know a lot of them were sold off. But it was only five years ago, a primary school teacher in Scotland, in Livingston, I think it was, hmm. she decided to make her kids go out and have fun and walk a mile a day yeah. around their school. And you don't, that's not a large distance, right? It's, it's it not at all. Over, over that period of that year, her obesity rates dropped dramatically. The education performance picked up dramatically. That's what can be done without the heavy hand of the state, which, you know, has its role, I get that, but it can also be done by just dealing with the circumstances in front of us and starting to train the kids. Yes. That program has a name, it's called walk, the, walk, the, 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 walk a mile, the Walk of a Mile, and it works. That's where we should be starting, and I wish we heard more about that in this um, in this um, this series of announcements. Today. Well, again, it's common sense, and, and you're right, Nick. I mean, you know, nobody disagrees with making people fitter, getting people healthier, 
But what I don't want to see is a sort of endless cavalcade of slogans about saving the NHS. Now, the NHS is there to help people. The NHS is there to cure people. The NHS is not there to be avoided by people uh, because it's something that they've done in order to get in there. You know, you might as well say, you know, don't drive your car, save the NHS in case you crash. You know, that's kind of where it heads in, in my view. Well, that, that, is, that is a logical uh, think-through, as ever, with you, Mike, but just worth bearing in mind, one of the reasons the NHS was founded and one of the reasons the Conservatives uh, supported it back in 1947 was uh, because the guarantee was it would improve our health so that, you know, we, we wouldn't, it wouldn't just be about treatment, it would improve our public health as well and the way we behave. And, and the fact of the matter is, the condition type 2 diabetes, which for the vast majority of people is under our control to avoid, because it is related to your health, your fitness, your diet, your exercise, that actually has associated costs of nearly 10 billion quid just on the NHS. And as I say, you know, if we were able to get that under control, we could spend that money perhaps on people who are not getting the certain drugs that they need because we're under pressure on the budgets or whatever. And that is personal responsibility, Mike. People, if they understood that, and we talked more about that and gave them ways that they could manage both diet and exercise and just think a little bit yeah. about what they're doing, they can make a difference. Do you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quote the statistics, and I probably am a little bit. But when I left Parliament after we did an investigation into this all those years ago, back in 2014-15, we were told that the average adult does not exercise um, 40 minutes a day, up to the point of 70% of adults do not do 40 minutes walking a day. Mm. That's not hard, you know. No. No, it really isn't. I mean, funnily enough, I was looking at the... Because I've got an iPhone, like many people do, and it has this recording of uh, the number of steps that ah, you take, the number of steps. miles that you walk or kilometres, the number of floors that you... I, I live three floors up, so I do at least six floors a day, which is always handy. Um, the thing about... Well, I thought I would be walking less because I'm now not using public transport. Actually, it hasn't gone down very much at all. So I walk roughly sort of three to four kilometres a day without even thinking. I mean, that's, that's to me, isn't uh, you know a great deal of exercise. It's better than nothing. But the thing is now, what I and, see... And you know what, Mike? Go on. Reward yourself. Go and have uh, that hamburger. We're slightly, we're slightly losing your signal, but I'll, I'll, here's what I will say, Nick. We'll get, we'll get you back because it's kind of coming in and out. Um, it's all about personal responsibility. Similarly, when we talk about the people on holiday in Spain, for example, now, you know, they might all say we're terribly shocked that this has happened. Well, they shouldn't be terribly shocked that this has happened because you were told that there's a pretty good chance that if you book a summer holiday this year, it's going to be disrupted in some way, shape or form. There is absolutely no chance that you should expect to have a, a trouble-free holiday, that your flights might not get moved, that your flights might not get cancelled, that you might end up going to a place which somehow ends up being put into lockdown. So don't tell me that you went away on holiday expecting everything to be smooth, expecting everything to be just like it was last year and the year before that and the year before that. This is a very different situation and so whether or not you think the government has done the right thing, if you have booked a holiday this summer, and I'd love to hear from you if you have, you know, you need to be prepared for this kind of thing to go wrong. And let's see if we got Nick back. I think we have, yeah. Nick, sorry yeah, about no, that. You started sounding like the man in uh, uh, the, who fell to earth. Yeah, well, that's probably because everyone's now on their internet trying to book some alternative holiday. They're holding up the bandwidth. Yeah, exactly. Fine. Yeah. But, Mike, you're absolutely right. 
It was four days ago, the papers were full of the fact the French government were considering closing a border with Spain. Hmm. Now, you know, the, these things, I don't expect people to be news junkies like me, but this was not, this was all out in the public domain, the risk you carry of going abroad. Hmm. Everyone gets, should get that. And so once I empathise with personal situations, particularly those who haven't seen family, you know, my brother's in Ibiza, I, seen, uh, I can understand the urge to go and see people. I get that. Um, but it comes with a risk. Also, let's not forget, there will be some people who will be going, OK, I can work from home. Uh, it's not all of that 600,000 that are going to find this very, very difficult. Some will. I get that. And, and they're going to face difficult situations. But the bottom line is, this was always on the cards. And guess what? There could be more. Yes, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. Nick, we'll leave it there because I think your line is, is a little bit shaky. But listen, look forward to seeing you again uh, on Saturday. Talk Radio 5 to 7 on Saturday. Nick DeVoire, as he said, he had the pleasure of breaking the news to everybody listening uh, over the weekend uh, that basically Spain uh, was now back in quarantine business. Uh, we'll find out later on today possibly whether the Balearics and the Canary Islands get put into a different place and whether you can go there without having to quarantine. I think the thing uh, to remember is that we are living in incredibly difficult times you know if you're the government now and i'm not going to be uh, you know sucking up to the government here but you know if you're the government uh, there are things that you say you have to do now for example a lot of people said to me over the weekend well hang on a minute they've been wearing masks in spain for a very long time They've now had to put areas back into lockdown. What's that all about? Well, I'll tell you what it's not about. It doesn't appear to be about masks. What it does appear to be about is a lot of nightclubs being open, a lot of young people getting infected and spreading the disease amongst themselves in places like Barcelona, uh, in places uh, around other holiday resort areas as well. And that seems to be the problem. But if you've booked a holiday, please do not tell me that you don't expect anything to go wrong because you should expect something to go wrong because it probably will. Because at the moment, it's a very volatile situation. It's that simple. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time to say uh, a very warm a weekly uh, hello to Mr Peter Hitchens. Peter, very good morning to you. Good morning to you too, Mike. Well, I mean, uh, it's perhaps even more uh, ridiculous this week than it was last week, isn't it? A very ridiculous indeed. And I was just doing something I, I used to do all the time, but have become a bit lax about lately, which was checking the uh, coronavirus um, worldometer. Uh, which actually gives the figures mm. uh, for deaths from COVID-19 uh, on a daily basis. So it's not wholly reliable because there's some catch-up involved. Because I thought, well, what are we fussing about with Spain here? Uh, and if you look at the total coronavirus cases in Spain, they are rising, though not to anything like the levels they were at mm. uh, between um, March and late April. But if you look at the daily new deaths in Spain, uh, they pretty much uh, cease around about June the 13th. There are very small numbers. Um, June 17th, daily death six. June 22nd, daily deaths one. June 25th, three. Then skip to July. Uh, July the 4th, naught. Uh, July the 9th, five. Ju July the 19th, naught. Mm. July the 23rd, three. Uh, July the 25th, naught. Uh, this is not, it seems to me, uh, a reason to destroy uh, the holiday hopes of, I think, probably something in the region of one and a half million people. Right. Uh, the, the, the whole obsession with the infections is, is very strange. I mean, in many cases, these infections, we never hear whether the people involved are actually ill or not. Right. 
And if you ask the question, are they ill or not, no answer comes back. And I think in most cases, the, the, the truth is they're not. What's happening is the governments everywhere are searching under this strange obsession they have with testing. They're searching for, for infections mm. and they're finding them. But well, the I mean, it's certainly in, not in... ill. And, and so what, what is what it, why it, it, as again, this is completely out of proportion uh, to the to the actual menace. Mm. Well, this is the thing. I mean, in Barcelona, we're told that the rise in infections is entirely down to nightclubs being open and a lot of young people getting infected. Now, there's a pretty good well, chance maybe. that most of those young people uh, will not be in any harm's way whatsoever. But they have created a spike. And so therefore, Barcelona has shut down all the nightclubs again. And it seems to me that that's the wrong course of action, because surely what you want to do is just get used to it. And say, well, right. the, character, the character of all these actions, I, mean, I, I call it the Canute policy because people of my generation all know the story of yes. King Canute. Uh, but I think increasingly people, people now don't know the story of the king who, who, who to, to explain to his courtiers that, that governments simply don't have that much power, mm. uh, arranged a bit of street theatre on the, on the Sussex shore and, uh, and set up his throne and ordered the tide to cease coming in, right. and it ignored him, and he got his feet wet. And it, the whole point of the story is governments just aren't that powerful. No. The idea that governments can control the spread of a sub-microscopic virus has always seemed to me to be pretty, uh, how shall I put it, um, pretty overstated. Right. Uh, and, and, and that's one of, the, one of the whole problems with this. It's a ridiculous utopian belief that by going around telling people to stay at home and spraying everyone with gallons of hand sanitizer and putting muzzles on their faces, we can stop the spread of a, of a disease which has spread naturally among us anyway. And it, it, it was long ago, it seems to me, quite out of control as far as spread is yes. concerned. And it just... It, and the same, and they seem to want, they seem to enjoy the the power which this has given them over us to order us about. Don't go there. Don't do that. Wear this. Uh, walk along this line. Stay at this this distance from everybody else. Don't go to work. Uh, stay off the trains. Uh, whatever it may be. Don't go on holiday. Don't go on the beach. An endless series of, of barked announcements. They don't do this, which, as far as I can see, have absolutely no effect whatsoever on the number of people who've died from the disease, which is largely stoked by what appears to be a major piece of incompetence over care homes earlier on in the Well, space. they also now say which that they, could they have think... Controlled and didn't. But they also now say they think a lot fewer people died of COVID than they said they did in the first place. But also, if you well, go if... back to the beginning, I seem to remember um, at least three to four members of the Cabinet saying at those briefings, you know, in the end, everybody will get this virus. And, and I mean, I haven't seen them retract that yet. Well, they, it, it did, and, and maybe so. I, the whole theory of herd immunity and all the rest of it is that people have varying views about what level of a population has to have it mm. before it takes place. But if, if this is what happens when the government continues to imagine, in my view, falsely, that it can control the spread of the disease, then I think we are again compelled to look at Sweden, yeah. uh, where they have, they, they have allowed the disease to spread among the population and create normal immunity, uh, where they're pretty much through it, where although they, had, they also messed up their care homes and therefore have a, a, a far higher level of deaths than they should have done, that wasn't caused by their decision not to go for tight controls. It was caused by messing up the policy on the care homes. And in general, Sweden has come out of this considerably better off than we have, and I think that it is the example everybody else should now be looking to. And I would have thought, uh, as a rational person, 
the people seeing the government flailing around, suddenly banning them from going on, on long-planned and, and much-hoped-for holidays, uh, that they're in the hands of people who simply don't know what they're doing, which has been the case from the start. Well, I suppose it's not quite correct to say they're banning them from going anywhere. They're just saying if you do go, and if you are there, you'll have to do a quarantine when you come back. But the quarantine it's itself... That means people having to face quite possibly Yeah, but it's not a ban. For a, for no, a I know. No, listen, I'm, 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 not, no, I'm not disagreeing with you, but the, the thing I find extraordinary as well is that when the original quarantine was imposed, you know, the one that they dropped a little while ago so people could go on holiday, um, there were so many exemptions to it that there was literally two pages worth of exemptions, including uh, BBC engineers, including uh, pilots of airlines, including people that work for Eurostar and including migrant workers. Yes, well, quite. I didn't realise BBC engineers were... Yes, exempt. yeah. I I well, I was going to ask you about the BBC. If, cause by, I, if I, by any chance key workers such <laughs> as myself were exempt. But, but no, I wasn't. Um, well, I was going to ask you about that because I listened to any questions. I was pleased to see that finally, after listening to, obviously, the greatest show in the world here with you uh, and, and I interacting, that the BBC have finally worked out it might be quite a good idea to put you on any questions. I think I think I must owe a lot of that to you. I think, I mean, it, it's, well, honestly, I had thought that the BBC had pretty much cut me off, uh, and and wouldn't let me wouldn't let me speak on right. the subject at all. And they let me on once on the Today programme to talk about something else for about thirty five seconds. Right. But uh, any questions, which is I've actually been appearing on uh, unbelievably to me now for, um, for, for for a quarter of a century now. Uh, is uh, it, it, it has always been a favourite programme of mine, but I, I, my appearances on it have been growing less and less frequent mm. over time. Mm. And I had been worried, and I was really uh, quite uh, pleased when I got an invitation. Though it wasn't, of course, the, the normal programme, because they don't do that. No, it's all done remotely, isn't and it? And the BBC it... headquarters is totally deserted. Yes, I mean, that's the, even more bizarre, isn't it? But but let's get back to, to the nanny state, because mm. um, the quarantine for me is only a quarantine. My, my uh, daughter's colleague, who was uh, working in Dubai, uh, had to go back to Australia and was put into quarantine. They drove him in a, in a, basically in a government car to a hotel, put him in a room and said, you stay there for 14 days, you don't come out. That's quarantine. You know, what yeah. we're offering is a, a sort of a laissez-faire quarantine. If you feel like it, uh, please try and stay in unless you absolutely have to go out. Well, there used to be in our trade an expression called going through the motions yeah. of, 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 of pretending to do something while not actually doing it, right. uh, which uh, was sometimes the, the, the wisest response to the commands <laughs> of, of, of mad executives. Yes. Uh, and, and then by the time that it, it turned out you hadn't done it, they'd forgotten. Right. Uh, there's an awful lot of going through the motions in the government's actions here. They, they are pretending to be active without actually yes. really doing it. Right. Uh, because they know perfectly well that if they did, if they did the things which they, they claim to be doing seriously, they, they would actually stop the country dead. I mean, not just jam the brakes on so it can barely move as mm. it is now, but it would actually stop. There wouldn't be any economy. There wouldn't be anything happening at all if they did, if they did the things they claim to be doing properly. Genuine mm. quarantine. But the whole point about quarantine is it was always, in the whole history of mankind until now, it was always used to quarantine people who were actually sick and yeah, infectious. Right. This is, it's never previously been used to quarantine the healthy, and, and it, uh, uh, which, who, of course, are always going to be the, the great majority, and right. far more of them. And it, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult to do. Yeah, and, and also it, the it logic they seem to be... Stalinist state to yeah. do it effectively, which also we the, the logic, have not yet got. The logic that they're attempting to use as well is, is kind of twisted, because I was just talking to a doctor before you came on who, much to your chagrin, I'm sure, said that he was hoping for the normalisation of mask wearing. Uh, I said, I've got somebody coming up who's not going to agree with that. But basically, they want to say to you, look, there's no point in us testing you and then keeping you uh, or making you, you, you available for work if you test negative, because it doesn't mean that you're negative. In which case, they might as well say everybody could 
have it. And then, therefore, everybody should be quarantined and never go out. Well, this is the, this is the thing which has made me reconsider immigration. I had thought that I was too old to do it. Uh, but I, looking at this, I, I think the normalization of muzzle wearing is something which, uh, which quite a lot of people would like to see. Mm. And just think about the implications of that. The human face is such a vital part of communications in life. And the idea is being spread that actually, actually, for the rest of our lives, we'll be going about in public with half our faces mm. covered. Uh, it, it, there is something so profoundly unnatural yeah. about that to me mm. that it gives me the creeps. Yeah. And, and, and also, this, also, I find it, I find the whole the sight of people walking about is so distressing. They look so strangled and, and pathetic. Right, and there's more and, of them and, now. And, 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 yeah, and submissive. Yeah. And I feel I'm, I'm surrounded. And the other the thing, I've been racking my brains as I argue with people about this. What is it that is, is so uh, frightful about it? And why do I object to it so much? And it came to me that this is actually compelled speech. If you wear one of these things, you are making an expression of support mm. for the government's whole policy. You're saying, I'm, I, I am actually supporting the, the, the government's Canute-like policy of trying, to, of trying to control the spread of a virus by, by, by extremely oppressive measures on personal life. And it's like being compelled under the threat of a fine to wear a great big badge saying, I support the government and its policy. Yeah. Well, I would and differ from you slightly there. I mean, I would, I, would, I would say that that would be the case, perhaps, if you were wearing one all the time. I mean, I, I, I take a slightly more relaxed view, which is that if I'm on public transport and they want me to wear a mask, I'll wear one. I don't go on it that often. It doesn't really affect me too much. If I now have to wear one to go into a shop, I'll do it because that's what they want me to do. But I certainly don't agree with government's policy on everything. And certainly I do not wish to, to advertise that. And I think you're, in a way, you're, you're juxtaposing somebody's willingness to go along with a sort of a, a herd immunity type view, I suppose, if you want. Um, and and you're, making them, you're making them out to be sort of fanatics. No, no, no. It's the, here it is. It's, it's the compulsion. Uh, anybody who wants to wear one of these things, I'm not going to go up to them and, and, and berate them for no. it. I'm, I'm not going to try and stop them from doing it. People, want, people actually want to go around for the rest, rest of their lives with half of their faces covered by a piece of soggy cloth. That's for them to do. Um, I, I can't, but what is, what is the concern here? It's the compulsion. Yeah. You say, oh, but it's not being asked all the time. But every, every, every few days, the, the places where this is being mandated spreads. Uh, for instance, a lot of people didn't notice uh, when, the, when the muzzle edict was extended uh, to shops. The rules about transport were also extended. Previously, they'd said you had to wear them when you were, you were on a train, bus mm. or plane or boarding them. Right. Now, the, it, it extends to all railway stations, airports and bus stations. What, so you have to wear one on the platform? You have to wear one on the platform. Right. Uh, technically, uh, th that, that, is, that is now the law. And remember also, these laws are not being made by Parliament. Mm. Parliament is barely functioning. These laws are effectively decrees. Yes. Uh, and they're not, they're not, there's been no discussion, no chance for anyone to lobby the government and say, look, we're, we're not sure about this. Nothing at all. Else. Right. I mean, my problem with the blood transfusion service, where I'm supposed to be giving blood this afternoon, uh, but they, the, the, the English blood transfusion service has suddenly, in between my booking the appointment and my, uh, and, and my going for it, has suddenly introduced a requirement that I must, I must wear a face covering to give blood. Mm. Now, the bizarre thing about this is the Welsh blood service actually insist that you don't wear a face covering because they believe it to be dangerous. Right. They say that they can't see, if your face is covered, they can't see the signs that you might be about to faint right. and therefore injure yourself. So they won't let people wear, wear these things during blood transfusions. 
So if I can't manage to give blood in in London today, which I'm hoping to do, then I'm. So I'm will you not give blood Wales. then? If will you not give blood if they make you wear? No, I'll go to Wales. All right, it's a long uh, way to go to give blood. Well, it is, but I, I, I people of Wales need blood. Just but you'll have to wear a mask on the train. Well, there's the difficulty, <laughs> isn't it? Although, I, again, there are all kinds of subtle things about um, about yeah. these rules, which are, which I have found are extremely flexible. I went to a lot of shops yesterday. Yeah, was not bothered, did not wear anything on my face. Mm. Uh, did anybody I, give I, you a hard time? Not at all. Right. Absolutely. You know, I find if you if you if, if you say the right thing to the people who go into the shop, uh, they give you a cheery wave and a smile. They, they, once you've given them a, a, a reason to to, yeah. to let you go by, and they and they, and they do that, and that's that's fine by me. I think that that's a very intelligent way of the shop. Well, it's quite way. British, though, isn't it? It's very British, and you, the, alas, you do not find it in, in in France, for instance. You try to go to a restaurant, mm. they won't let you in the restaurant unless you cover your face. Yeah. Then once you've sat down, you can you, you can uncover your face. But right. then if you want to go to the lavatory, you have to cover your face again. Right, I know. Get, it's get crazy. Get up the table. It's a madness. And, 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 and but I find that... France I find, has always been a, a despotism anyway. I find that the, it, it depends on the, on the hostelry. But I've been to a few um, bars and restaurants in the last couple of weeks, and most of them are pretty relaxed. Very few are actually insisting that you fill out a form. I've only been to one place that's done that. And I went to one other place where uh, the woman who was sort of standing on the door, basically, I said to her, what's the situation? And she basically said, well, I'm so fed up. Basically, do what you like. And I mean, well, you know, I think a lot of people are now taking that view. Well, there are a lot of sensible people. I went to church yesterday morning and they're supposed to take your name. And I said, Ken Dodd, the Broken Biscuit Repair Works, Naughty Ash. <laughs> Did they write it and down? Everybody laughed, and that was it. Yeah. But, so, but someone insisted on squirting me with that horrible hand sanitizer yeah. as, I, as I went in. I, sooner or later, all that stuff is going to run into the sea. I know. The sea is going to be sticky with hand sanitizer. I'm thinking of it. There'll be letters to the Times from dolphins and whales saying, <laughs> stop well, exactly. absorb all this poisonous alcoholic hand sanitizer. Yes. Well, here's something I, else for you, which I imagine you will be as, as, as incensed as I was this morning reading the, first, the front page of the Daily Telegraph. Lose five pounds and save the NHS 100 million. <laughs> Quinn. Well, I'm sorry, I refuse to do that. You know, I mean, it's, it's not actually quite that simple a sum. Um, I have actually you know, it, it, managed to lose weight from time to time. Mm. It gets harder as you get older. Yeah, it does. Uh, Tell and me I, about I, it. I think I, but I do take exercise, and mm. I, I, I've long believed that people who take exercise and remain reasonably fit, uh, and if, if you can keep your weight down, uh, should be given tax breaks for yeah. it. Because I, think, I, think, I don't want to punish anybody for not doing it, mm. but I think people who make the effort should be rewarded. Because, frankly, if you do take exercise, you greatly reduce the chance you're going to be yeah. burdening the health service. And it's, it, it's a good thing. But so much of the advice about food that's given is rubbish. Right. I, you can't, I, it's all, it's um, sugar, salt, and fat. There's nothing wrong with fat. Fat doesn't make you fat. Fat is, in many cases, what gives the food its taste. And the yeah. reason why there's so much sugar and salt in food is because the fat's been taken out. Yeah. And my favorite item of, 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 of food uh, from the satirical point of view is something called a fat-free blueberry muffin, which oh, yeah. you sometimes see. And it's such a complete piece of rubbish. The fat-free blueberry muffin is a ball of sugar. Yeah. If you eat it, you will become fat. <laughs> 
and, and the fact that it has no fat in it, yeah. there's no benefit I had to, all. I, so I, it's I, skim milk. It's, yeah. it's completely pointless misunderstanding of nutrition. And, and also people think that by taking exercise you'll get thinner. I am living evidence that you do not. Yes. You, I, I, I ride a huge number of miles a, a week on my bicycle at, at normal time. I've never lost an ounce mm. by doing it. In fact, it probably puts weight on because you feel justified in eating more when you've done it. Yeah, but also there's nothing worse, is there, than somebody like Boris Johnson who lost some weight because he had a terribly bad health experience and a health scare, but he now wants everybody else to do the same thing. Well, I'm sorry, you know, one, it's not his job to tell me what to eat, and two, no. it's not my job to save the NHS 100 million. He could save 100 million in the NHS by doing away with Public Health England, which would be a far better method of, uh, of saving money. There is much in what you say. I mean, the poor, poor, the poor chap, I mean, I, I don't I don't dislike him personally. It is a shame that he was, he was so ill, and all the rest of one is, is, is glad to see that he's, he's being more sensible totally. about it. But, but the trouble is, being Prime Minister is bad for your health. Yeah. You, got, you, you can't exercise for a start. The, the security people won't let you do it. And you're constantly being fed things, and it's a sedentary life, and it's a stressful life. And yeah. if, if, uh, my advice to him, if he wants to be more healthy, is to, is to, is to resign. Uh, yeah, that's probably Which very sound advice. advice. Anyway, frankly, at the moment, because he's made such a mess of the country. <laughs> that does it well, I mean, I'm a bit more of a supporter of his than you are, but uh, that wouldn't be difficult. Well, but, you know, be difficult. but also, I, my worry about this is this is the beginning, and you would have probably said this at some point over the last few weeks, of this kind of creeping, you know, now we must save the NHS from this or save the NHS from that. Yeah. You know, let's clap everybody and tell them what a great yeah. job they're doing. And now we must do this, that and the other. I mean, they need to overhaul the NHS. It is so fat uh, in, 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 in the sense of, of waste that it's ridiculous. Ridiculous, you know, but nobody's willing sense. to do it's that. Often, it often doesn't work very well. It's a, every few months, there are terrible cases of hospitals where things have gone very badly wrong, yeah. right? particularly with birth defects and things like that. Where you yeah. get, and it's impossible, it seems to me, to ask people who've had experiences of that kind to clap the NHS as if it was a completely wonderful service. I, the, the, the French have a, a pretty good national health service, which, amongst other things, abolished mixed wards. Mm. About 30, in fact, wards as such, right. about 30 years ago. You don't go into a great big ward in a, in, in, a, in, a, in a French hospital. You get a room, and that's normal. Mm. Uh, and, and they, but they don't make a fetish out of it. Right. Uh, it, it it's, it's something that's accepted that, that ought to work, and more or less well, does work. As, as it's, many it's not, people... It's just not that good. No, well, as many people have pointed out in the past, if our uh, service is so brilliant, our health service, the way we run it is so brilliant, why does nobody else in the world run it the same way? Because in Germany, one of the reasons they did so well with the testing and, and tracing and all that is because all of the, the labs are private, privately run, Privately operated, far more efficient than anything that public yeah, health I mean, can goes, do. It goes both ways. I'm not. I, I when I lived in America, I lived next door to a to a, to a medium-sized private hospital in the in the suburbs, and I, I went and took a look at it, and I then went back down to DC and looked at the big public hospital there. I, the, the truth is, it's not. It's really a matter of public or private. Mm. Uh, it's got much more to do with the way in which the thing is managed. But ultimately, all health services are illness services. And the, the thing which, which a government should be trying to do is to encourage people, as I said earlier, to, be, to, to, to avoid becoming ill in the first place. Yeah. Once you are that badly ill, there's nothing anybody can really do except, except submit you to all kinds of unpleasant mm. surgery and drugs, which won't actually make you as healthy as you would have been if you haven't got ill in the first place. Yeah. It's prevention we need. And, and that, the, 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 the advanced societies of the world really do need to concentrate on prevention if they if they want to solve the health problem. No, I totally agree. Peter, we're at the end once again, but it's a oh, very nice. enjoyable conversation. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, do let us know the outcome of the blood scenario next week, perhaps. When we oh, talk. don't worry. You'll be hearing about it. <laughs> very good. Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday there. Uh, you may agree with much of what he says. You may disagree with much of what he says, but he does hold his views very firmly uh, and with a great uh, sense of belief. And so you have to give him praise for that.
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Charles Ray, fresh from his triumph at the weekend on Channel 5 and his uh, uh, documentary about Princess Diana. Charles, a very good uh, good afternoon, I should say. Welcome oh, back. Just good afternoon, Mike. Yep. Well, listen, um, this is quite extraordinary, this book, isn't it? I mean, I was really interested in the fact that uh, the way that uh, the relationship between the authors of the book and Harry and Meghan has been explained is uh, leaves a little to be desired, in my view, uh, particularly the correspondent from Harper's magazine, Omid, um, who basically seems to be a pretty good friend of Meghan Markle's, saying that he was one of the few people in the room when she declared that she was going to leave the country. He was able to give her a hug. You know, it's pretty clear, is it not, that they've certainly given the nod to their friends to talk to them. Well, yes, I think there's no doubt that um, uh, that uh, they have given the nod. I mean, let's not forget that in some of the instances that are repeated in the book, there's only a couple of people in the room. One was the Queen, the right. other was Prince Harry. Right. Now, unless someone's going to suggest that the Queen's, uh, you know, phoned up the tabloid papers <laughs> and said, you know, guess what Harry's just told me, then it can, you can only imagine that if Harry hasn't done it himself... He's well briefed uh, a friend or a, a friend of Meghan's. Yes. I mean, it's all quite extraordinary. And I think in your intro, you are absolutely right. This book is going to cause irreparable damage. I mean, there was a hope that there could have been a reproachment mm. between the couple and the, the rest of the royal family. Well, I think this book's now has is, is made that quite clear. It's not going to happen. Um, we have a situation where the, 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 the couple were having a, a, a year, in effect, a year off, and then there was going to be a review. Well, I can't see anything changing uh, in, in the very near future no. that's going to allow this couple to come back on board and do the odd royal job for the family. And there's a lot of people going to feel very, very unhappy with the thing, uh, uh, and, and that, no, not, not least of all Charles, mm. And William and Kate, who seem to have done nothing wrong in this, um, and they've started to hit back, which is the which is a good thing mm. actually. They started to hit back and say, "Look, hang on a second, we didn't sort of 
um, hold her out or anything like that. We welcomed her into the family. Right. Uh, you know, Kate sent flowers for her birthday. Um, and just Megan just seemed to want more and more support. For for what reason? I'm not I'm not I'm not too sure. Well, she clearly didn't like playing second fiddle, did she, to Wills and Kate? Because in the end, there is a protocol inside the royal family, which you is. know better than I do. Which is that if you're the heir to the throne, uh, you're higher up in the pecking order yeah. than the guys who are not the heirs and to I, the throne. And I think what what has happened is that Megan and Harry realised just how popular that they were becoming in this country mm. and their star was on the ascendant. So they decided to ruin it. <laughs> and well, they decided to ruin it because they did not like playing second fiddle yes. to William and Kate. And it seems they didn't like playing second fiddle to any other member of the royal family either. No. And so they were, they were issuing their own programmes, if you like, on days that, you know, the Queen should have been issuing a, a programme or Charles or William or whatever. They just didn't like to wait for their place in line uh, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have meant any great hardship to it mm. and let's not forget that they did it they did it as well in private if you remember when princess eugenie got married the girl's big day and everything else lots of crowds and whatever what happened megan announces that she's pregnant mm. now takes all the that girl's day away from her yeah. because you know papers are filled next day you know megan megan pregnant mm. i know it's a sort of bizarre kind of illness almost that she seems to suffer from, that she can't have anybody taking a limelight away from her. I mean, interestingly, the Sun's front page this morning uh, is all about Prince Harry giving Charles just 20 minutes notice yeah. um, before launching an attack on the media on the day that his dad was going off to, middle, uh, to do a tour of the Middle East. Well, this is what I meant about, you know, making announcements when other royals were about to embark on other, other programmes. Yeah. This was quite an important royal visit by the Prince of Wales. Right. Uh, you know, and I'm not suggesting for one minute that that visit was going to get front-page news, but whatever news was going to come, you know, would have been in the papers. Yeah. But, of course, when Harry decides to, you know, do his, do his bit... That, that's what took over. Mm. Nothing else was mm. was was important uh, uh, around him, and this is the sort of thing that they have been doing all along. Yeah. And I, you know, I feel slight, slight sympathy with them in the sense that you know there were people at the palace who thought they, they needed to be reined in a little because of the popularity. I think there's a wrong attitude. I think they should have accepted that they were very very popular, and helped. You know, that popularity would have helped boost the royal family even more. So I don't think they should have been reined in, but I think Harry and Meghan should have realised that in the pecking order, they were, you know, number, at least number four. Yeah, well, exactly right. But this is the other thing. I'm sure she did something similar when it was Kate's birthday. Do you remember? I think it was a, one of these sort of Sussex announcements about what they were going to do next. Or, That's right, or yes, how, it was. Yeah. You know, and she completely did it clearly to uh, sort of to, to upset the apple cart because it was Kate's birthday. You see, and also when she complains about how she felt snubbed and everything else, you I mean people close to Kate uh, are suggesting that they, you know, how can you say we, they weren't welcoming? She invited them round, uh, Megan round to Amner Hall, and she even cooked a vegetarian meal. Mm. You know, what, what would be the snub if she'd cooked a steak and chips? Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> Exactly. What's the difference? I mean, but bizarrely as well, this whole book situation has happened. I mean, it's quite ironic to me that they've chosen the times through which to sell it, given that yes. they don't speak to most newspapers, including The Sun, uh, which obviously has the same owner as The Times. But what they haven't done is made any kind of statement of any kind. So which basically, for me, means that they tacitly approve of what's being well, said. You're absolutely right, because let's not forget, this couple have practically got a season ticket for court, court cases all, all over. They have not said one word about this book. They've not said one word for it, not said one word against it. Mm. And if, 
there was an interview in the Times, I think, at the weekend with Omid Scobie, one of the joint authors, yeah. in which he was asked, not once, not twice, but four times, did they... Com- did they um, uh, was there an interview with Harry and Meghan? Did they uh, join in and give them details? And four times this guy evaded this question. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you, and it gives you this thing, well, you know... There has to be some sort of cooperation from Harry and Meghan on this. Maybe not directly, but I think they knew. And there's also been a story where when they heard that the book was coming out, they organised their people to talk to, uh, I'm assuming to talk to the authors, where there was dinners. There was at least one dinner at which was discussed what was going on. Reported back to Harry and Meghan, who sat back and smiled sweetly, but never never raised any objection. Now, these are the couple who say they want their privacy, Mm. uh, yet... The, the, you know, they're quite happy for people to talk about them. Well, it's a and funny definition was, of privacy, isn't it? It is. And I thought it was very, very interesting. The one revelation I found in the book, I mean, I have to say, in the book, most of what I've read so far, most of which is what we already know, it's just the minutiae of detail mm. that's come out. But the one thing that's come out there is that Megan herself, when she was a budding actress, used to phone up the paparazzi yeah. and tell them where she was. Well, let's not forget the first person she made touch, uh, touch base with and made contact with when she first came to London was Piers Morgan. Yes. You know, she sat in that pub uh, that he uh, that, that is near his house in, in Kensington and asked his advice on how she could sort of break through uh, into society in Britain and get noticed and who she should hang out with and whose parties she should go to. And I think that she also had um, a meeting, at least one meeting, with another showbiz journalist as well, a female showbiz. I can't remember her name, so forgive me. But which she was, you know, hoping to use her as a conduit into, you know, what was going on here in, in the UK. Um, so she's quite adept at, at using the media when she, when she wants. Um, and, you know, and uh, she, when we saw at the weekend as well the, some of the detail about uh, Thomas Markle and how she acted when he himself went to the paparazzi in, involved in stage pictures, she, she threw her pram, she threw her toys at the pram, you know. Mm. No, it's very strange, isn't it? And the other thing is that we know that she's got form for this because the court case against Associated Newspapers is all about five individuals who are friends of hers who supposedly were given permission by her to talk to People magazine who she's now attempting to kind of protect. Now, I don't know or I don't imagine that those same five people would have talked to Omid Scobie and, and, and his co-author, um, but it's not beyond the realms of possibility. No, I, I mean, I, I, would have, I would have thought that all five were involved in talking to either Omid Scobie or Carolyn Durant, the other... Uh, author of this um so yeah yeah absolutely right one minute they're trying to sort of you know protect these people in some way from the nasty newspapers Mm. and yet given maybe just not them but others as well the nod that it's okay to to speak there is no way a very close friend of megan's or harry's would have dared say anything to any journalist any author without first of all approaching them and asking Yes. No way. Of course not. And, I mean, some of the information, as you quite rightly point out, could only have come from them. Yes. Because nobody else knows it. Yes, it's, it, it, it's the huge detail that you look at what happened with the Queen and Harry alone in the room. Mm. I mean, that, for me, is the most fascinating aspect of it. And it, descriptions of their dates, the date nights and everything else, when they're on a date, this is just Harry and Meghan, on right. a date, first night, they're sitting on red velvet chairs, she drank a martini, he drank a, uh, a beer. Right. Who told the... Who, who else told them, told them that? <laughs> I know. 
And also, what about that one about? I mean, this was this was, I think, day one in the Times where they talked about, and, and this is this could only have come from them because it's only, um, you know, crazy enough to be their idea that they landed in uh, Heathrow and wanted to go straight to see the Queen, even though there was no appointment made yeah. because they needed to see her on the basis that they thought they were being messed around. Now, only they could have come up with that stupid idea, and only they could have then said, "Oh, but we thought better of it because we didn't want to upset the apple cart." Again, oh, really? They're the only two that were talking to each other. Right. About that plan, they right. didn't speak to anyone else. I mean, they, they didn't go and see the Queen. But you're right. Who who else would have known right. about it unless they had specifically told someone? These are the details of what you need to know. Yes, and so as far as the damage being done is concerned, I mean the one thing the royal family hates is washing being uh, being displayed in public. Mm. You know, washing the, the dirty dirty laundry and all of that. You know, and and surely this now alienates them even more. Oh, it does. Uh, there's no. There's no doubt about that. We, we, yeah, the thing about that's apparently set off the feud between William and uh, and, and Harry was where Harry, uh, where William, sorry, uh, sat down and said to him, "Are you sure about this girl?" Mm. Now, it's the two words, "this girl," yeah. which apparently has enraged Harry. Now, okay. I don't think that William was doing it to snub or be a snob or yeah. anything else. It was a brother concern for his younger brother. And let's not forget, a younger brother who had admitted he had mental problems. And he had a number of um, liaisons. I love that word, liaisons, with, yes. other, with other women. Yeah. And so it was only right for William to sort of say, look, are you, is this the one? Are you sure this is the one? Maybe he should not have used the, word, the, the two words this girl and referred to as Megan. But that's what set it all off. Mm. And they haven't really spoken all that much, you know, since then. And I can't see this book doing anything that will smooth over the battle between them. Kate's fearlessly protective of her own family. And I believe, and I've said this to you before, I firmly believe that the royal family bent over backwards to welcome Meghan Markle into the royal family. So did the nation, to be fair. Absolutely. The nation, the press, everybody thought she was a breath of fresh air. Nobody cared that she was biracial. And we loved the fact that she was an actress, that she was an American, that she had everything going for her. She, she came from a poorish background and made her own way in the world. What could be better? Mm. And unlike Diana and the Duchess of York, whose path into the royal family was a lot, lot tougher and a lot, lot more rocky. Yes. Just look what happened to them. Right, exactly right. She doesn't actually know how fortunate she's been. And I still say that when she claims to have given up her life for this family, I mean, to not realise the irony of that statement is quite remarkable. You know, this no, is somebody it, it is. who was a nobody, effectively. You know, she'd made a few bob. She'd been in a couple of TV shows. I've seen some of the uh, the, the movies that she's been in, in, sort of cameo roles. Absolutely dreadful, embarrassing stuff. I, you saw, know. I saw one I saw one. Incredibly movie, bad. And, and it, was, she was ba- it was based in London. She played some girlfriend, some other. Yeah. But, and it was dreadful. And absolutely I mean, dreadful. Yeah, but the idea that she gave all that up for them... And you kind of go, really? Are you sure about yeah. that? Is that that's well, what you want to go with? When you think if she gave up, you know, being well, a, 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 a B-class actress in, you know, a, a soap in effect in, yeah. in Suits to being, you know, a triple A uh, member of, you know, Britain, if not the world's premier family, mm. then, I, you know, I think she's got a 
she's mad. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably the most sensible thing you've said, Charles. Thank you very much indeed. Charles Ray, uh, of course, a man uh, that knows a thing or two about the Royals. He was on, uh, if you haven't seen it, you should check it out, actually. It went on, out on Channel 5 on Saturday, uh, a documentary about Princess Diana, because, you know, you can compare her to Meghan Markle all day long, and I'm afraid Meghan Markle looks like a pretty low-rent version of Princess Diana. He's a former royal editor of The Sun, of course. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're going to talk now, though, about some creatures who can go wherever they like. They don't ever get quarantined. Uh, They fly around uh, in the sky and just do what they want. And they are, of course, uh, birds of a feather. And we're going to talk now uh, to Lucy Hodson because it's time for our homeschooling section. Even though it's uh, school holidays now, we're still going to do this homeschooling section because it's very um, informative. Uh, It helps people uh, give their kids something to listen to as well. So if you haven't got your kids around the radio now or around the television, please do so. Uh, Let's talk to Lucy from the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Lucy, a very good afternoon to you. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. Now, um, I know I know it's probably wrong to link this to people going on holiday, but, you know, people are very concerned about when they go somewhere and then they have to come back that they may have to quarantine. But birds, of course, don't have such, uh, such problems. But tell us a bit about birds that migrate, because at the moment, I'm assuming, um, if you were a bird flying around London, you'd be also asking, I thought it was July, should we go somewhere warmer? Yes, exactly that. And it is quite a good comparison to compare birds to people going on holiday because a lot of their movements are basically weather-based. It's all about going somewhere that favours them a little bit more. So the birds that are here at the moment that are migrants um, have spent the winter in warmer climes, places like Africa, and then they'll travel all the way to the UK to spend a a lovely, glorious British summer here with British weather. Yes. Um, But wetness isn't a... Oh, sorry. So I was going to say, so they quite like, do they quite like temperate sort of climes then? Exactly that. So as much as we might get sick of a little bit of rain, it's actually quite good for a lot of birds mm. um, that are migrants because they're, a large number of them are insectivores, so they eat creepy crawlies and mini beasts. Yeah. Um, so wet weather can be good for all sorts of bugs and, and critters. Okay. To eat. And when we see birds flying, I mean, you don't often see kind of flocks of, of birds. You see flocks of geese sometimes flying or you see, you know, sometimes those amazing um, footage, those bits of film footage of, of you know, like what look, what's looked like millions of birds all sort of flying through the air. I mean, they could, how far can they actually fly? Does it depend on the bird? I mean, how far can they fly without stopping? Totally depends on the bird. So some birds don't migrate at all. They mm. are born and they live and they die within a couple of kilometres of where they hatched out the egg. Right. Um, and other ones travel from one side of the world to the other. So the champion migrator is the Arctic tern, this beautiful bird that looks like a really elegant type of gull. Mm. Um, and every year they basically, they're really greedy. They get two summers. So they spend summer in the Northern Hemisphere. They breed in the Arctic Circle. Right. Um, and then when it turns into the Arctic's winter, they travel all the way to the Southern Hemisphere and spend the southern hemisphere summer in the antarctic circle so um that's i think it's up to fifty thousand miles they migrate it's something wow. ridiculous that's mad um, isn't it and so how long would they take to do something like that i mean how far could they actually go in one one go as it were uh i think so i'm not sure about arctic terns but certain birds like swifts which are very iconic birds that you might see over towns and cities they can mm. travel about five or six hundred miles a day right um up to 70 miles an hour they're really really fast birds yeah. and Swifts spend their winter in in southern um, Africa. So okay, and I mean the study of birds has been obviously going on for probably several hundred years. But I mean, are you getting better at sort of tracking them and and figuring out why they do what they do and why they go where they go? Yes, exactly. So um, interestingly, in the past, a lot of people who are interested in wildlife would notice that these birds in summer would suddenly disappear and not really know where they went. And one of the theories was that things like the swallow, very familiar summer bird, would actually spend winter 
in the bottom of pond beds in the mud, okay. <laughs> which we now know is not true. Um, so technology has allowed us to do things like attach tiny transmitters to them, which can give us very up-to-date um, location data. But before that, we can put um, little rings on birds' legs. So it's a harmless way of uh, basically giving an identity, a name to a bird. And so mm. if we put a ring on a, a bird's leg in the UK and then it turns up in Africa, we know that it got there. And right. Um, you can find fascinating information about um, them through ringing. It's really good. Okay, and if you're a, 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 a bird that which spends, say, summers in 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 the UK, but but winters in Africa, are you? A, a, what, you know, where are you from? If you like, I suppose is the question. Are you a native <laughs> bird to both places? Um, I suppose so. Birds are kind of citizens of the world in that mm. respect. Um, I mean, a lot of our birds here were were born in the UK. So does that make them a, a British bird? Birds like the swifts only spend three months here. So the majority right. of their year is spent either traveling to and from. Okay. And then we get migrants as well that only spend the winter here. So um, believe it or not, a, a British winter is a lot warmer than a lot of other places. Mm. Yes. Um, so birds from Scandinavia come down to the UK for winter as okay. well. So. And so is there a sort of a, a pattern emerging? I mean, has it always been the same or do, do more birds migrate now than they used to? Are there more of them? Um, it's probably evolved over time. So if you think climate's always changed throughout history mm. um, and a lot of birds that live in temperate zones in the world um, at the equator, they don't move at all because they don't need to. So um, as our kind of years have become more and more dramatic in, um, you know, hot and cold, then birds will have learned to adapt to that and migrations evolved. It's a fascinating thing because it's it's all to do with the length of the day. So birds will just feel this internal clock. Um, you can get very nerdy and very sciencey. Some birds can actually see mm. uh, magnetic fields, so they can sense whereabouts they're flying according to the North Pole, and that oh, really? helps them navigate. Right. It's yeah, it's almost like magic. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I always assume when you see birds flocking in one direction or another, they're just sort of following the guy at the front, or they're following, you know, whoever it happens to be, you know, leading them. But but I guess there's a sort of instinct that they follow now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're just like us as well, as well as using magic things like magnetic field sensing. They use um, landmarks. So lots of birds are known to, you know, they might even recognise a specific church spire in a town as they mm. come back. Right. Um, they'll recognise the coast that they're flying past when they're going along okay. um, a country. So Interesting. And how long do birds, I mean, again, obviously this varies, I dare say, depending on which bird we're talking about. But how? what's their sort of av- average lifespan of a, of a migrating bird? Oh, it's all different. Um, once again, so some birds can be very long lived. Um, I think albatrosses, there's some albatrosses that have been recorded breeding for like 60 years right um some small some of our smaller garden birds so things really familiar faces like the robin and the blackbird might live on average about three five years okay um but again through ringing we can work out we can see that we're seeing the same individual year on year so they'll make um, this trip sort of maybe what 10 times in their lifetime if that's the case. yeah so birds like the swift i'll talk about the swift a lot because they're a brilliant bird um they're very iconic and they've unfortunately declined quite a lot hmm. uh, by about 50 percent in the uk the swifts don't actually start breeding until they're three. Right. And, and the brilliant thing about them, they've got these really weird floppy little feet. So they almost can't walk. Their feet are almost useless. Right. Um, people in medieval era used to think they didn't have feet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when a swift leaves the nest for the first time, it will not touch the ground. It will not land on a tree or anything for two to three years. It will fly solidly without right. stopping, That's which amazing. is amazing. That Doing is amazing. That all, all the time. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. Uh, very helpful indeed. So is there, I mean, if somebody wanted to sort of track a bird as far as uh, they could uh, can you do that on on the royal society for the protection of birds website perhaps so we've got a number of projects um we work as partners with things like the uh, operation turtle dove which is a very iconic breeding bird again and mm. um, i think there's some tracked individual turtle doves that you can look at um, and in the past we've worked with people like the bto for cuckoo projects um, again the cuckoo of massively declining migrant bird 
um, you can see these live maps, but you can even get to know your own local birds. Mm. Um, I used to know an oyster catcher um, that was known as Peggy <laughs> and she only had one leg. Right. And um, so you could very easily distinctly recognize right. her when she came back to breed every year. So. Oh, wow. So that's good, isn't it? So fascinating mm. stuff. Well, thank you very much indeed. Hopefully very useful uh, for people who didn't know too much about that before uh, that conversation with Lucy Hodson uh, from the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Go on the website, check it out, find out what your own birds are doing in your own backyard and you might be able to track them uh, wherever it is that they go. could be a fascinating little project for the summer. And again, this is why we try to do homeschooling, because if you've got kids and you're trying to keep them occupied and keep them off the PlayStation and off the Xbox every five minutes, uh, then these are the kinds of little projects that you can get stuck into. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 